Hey guys, welcome back to The Screenwriting Life. Uh, today we are on part two of our series on being a beginner and beginning. So both where to begin uh, as an emerging writer, but also where to begin your story. And for part two, we're going to answer some questions that we got on the Facebook page about this topic. Okay, so first, under the banner of choosing what to write. So you're an emerging writer. You're a pro writer, quite honestly. What do you write? Um, Stephen or Stefan, I'm not sure which, asked, how do you know if an idea is worthy of spending the next three, six, or 12 months on when you're writing on spec? Is the idea worthy? What do you think, Lorraine? I think it's really hard to know at the very beginning. I think you just have to start writing and see what comes out, whether it's magic or not, right? Like you just have to sort of dig in and see what you feel, where it takes you. It's hard to know sometimes, but the the test is, does this make you have a feeling? Are you curious about it? Are you angry about it? Do you not have a feeling at all? And you're wondering why it's it should be something that makes you have a feeling. So I check back into that. Or the characters, the character, somebody that came to you that you feel is engaging, interesting, infuriates you, is doing something cool. Um, if you're feeling nothing and you have no interest in it, I would write a little bit. And then like, why are you writing about that then? So it's basically, it comes from you and what you're interested in. If the question is worthy as in like, is it going to sell? Are other people going to like it? I would say just ignore that and write into what you want to explore. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. You should be writing what ideas won't let you alone. What mm -hmm. characters are knocking on the door. Even if you're like, nobody will ever buy that. That's a waste of my time. I'm saying this. I need to take my own advice, by the way. Um, I mean, and you might think of something that you think is super sellable and you are excited to write it. Like it is, it's a really, when you get in there, you might not be so excited because it doesn't work. But, you know, as long as you feel that excitement and, you know, another, you know, so, the, the kind of outside in test is if you, can you tell the story to somebody else and see, watch their eyes, right? Are they kind of like, what? Mm, mm, eh. Now that just might mean you don't have it yet doesn't mean you shouldn't do that idea, but maybe you haven't gotten the kernel, the the, the connection yet for that idea because you can't you can't tell somebody in a paragraph verbally. You can't tell the story campfire wise and you'll know you're going to watch. And by the way, it doesn't have to be another writer. It could be your aunt. It could be your brother. It could be your friend. I don't care who it is. That's I my my sister in law, Karen. I often bounce my ideas off of her because I can tell in her face like I got her something's here. There is something here or she has no idea what I'm talking about right now. Um, so that's kind of sometimes, uh, you know, you can do a litmus test that way. If you're really trying to think about, is this idea got legs? And then like Lorraine said, sometimes you just have to do it and find out, but don't fail. If you still feel something, then you're just being a chicken shit. You got to give it. It's a fair, it's fair shake. It's fair. Try. Yeah. And I think in part one, some of the questions you asked between situation versus story, we talked a little bit about this in part one, Stephen. So that might help you too as you're approaching your ideas. Um, and think. he did ask in a second uh, part of the question, um, you know, ideas that will move your career forward um, or that you artistically want to write but might not be helpful. So now he got very specific, and I want to make sure that we are clear. If there, so there's something artistic you want to write, but you're afraid it won't sell, I still say write it because that's how you're going to find voice. And those things are great samples 
I mean, most of my career has been built on those scripts. But Steven specifically asked about a sequel to a franchise you don't have the rights to. That is very different. That I would not do. No, thank you. It's too dangerous for you. For features, I would not do that. That's more like fan fiction almost, and that doesn't play. Now, in TV, you can write spec uh, shows for TV shows. Those are good samples, um, some to have. But for features, I would not do that. I would, it should always be an original idea that you own and that's yours. Uh, So that's just a little different. Agree. All right. So Jessica asked, when do you move on to the next script? So she says, I know that writing is rewriting, but if I'm trying to build a portfolio of work, how do I move on from the first project? I feel like every time I successfully finish a version of it, more ideas come to me about how to make it better. And I just keep chipping at it. I heard on your pod that nothing is ever perfect, but how perfect is perfect enough to get started on the next if I would like to have several perfect pieces eventually? It's a good question, Meg. <laughs> okay, yes, nothing is ever perfect. Like, literally, I know multiple directors who have sat in the premiere of their movie thinking about the recut they want to do or that the music there doesn't work or why did I do that? Like, it never ends. You have to pull it out of people's hands often just because there's a due date and they have a release date. Like, because So that sense you have, I don't know that that ever goes away because you are a storyteller and you're you're getting more and more clarity every time you get to see it up either in pages or in or or, or in in the scene so that feeling never quite goes away um i'd say that in terms of a script you're going to know that you can move on well a if you get stuck move on like go to the next one and come back maybe you don't have the skill set yet maybe you can't see it because it's too close to the lava and there's a big blind spot go write something else and see if the lava comes out in a different way and you can see it so but if we're talking about when to ha- you know when you're done cuz it's actually starting to really form and sing and be a a piece of writing that you can hand out to people a project you're going to know when people read it. You know, I just talked about my sister-in-law, Karen, that when I I can see in her face, it's the same with the script. You're going to get this reaction back that's kind of like, I fucking love this. Like, I, I have notes, don't get me wrong, but like, I love this. And they start talking about what they like this and they like that and they like this moment. And this was so emotional and I got a little teary here and this made me laugh so hard and I love this character. What is this cat character? I don't even know where this cat character, like they, this is what they want to talk about and they want to have a conversation with you about your piece, right? They're not suddenly detached from it. In there, You get a reaction that isn't intellectual, that isn't kind of assessing something. They've been affected by the story, right? That's when you know you're really getting close now that... Um, now again, it's a script, so it's a blueprint. So I also want to be fair that some stories need the visualization to get that level of a reaction, but you really do want to be at a writer at a level that I can still say that as I read it. Right. Um, so that's just, you know, uh, what I, what I judge by and usually honestly for me, that's my manager. Like when he starts saying that kind of stuff, I'm like, okay, we're pretty close. And then when he doesn't, when I thought, sure, he was going to, uh, yeah, I, we got to go back and redo the whole thing because uh, we're nowhere near that response. Um, you know, and it's what do you want this for with this thing that you're writing? You get that kind of response. Like I said, it could maybe just be a sample. Don't worry so much about where it's going to sell, especially for emerging new writers. 
your voice and the story is the most important because that gets you the next job, that gets you the next thing. So I, I want to add about the chipping away. Uh, what you know, we we talk about are you just changing it or making it better? And one way, because I chipped a script to death and had to go back many, many versions to figure out what it was that I and other people were responding to, is I looked at if it changed what happened in the next scene at all. So if I was just noodling around with the dialogue or like changing the entrance or the like the how they walked it, like if it didn't change the scene before or after, it was a good way for me to tell, ooh, am I just noodling? Oh, that's good. That's noodling. If it doesn't and, ripple, it's a noodle. Yeah. And even though you might be like, oh, this is such a better way to say this line. The script is not a line. One line isn't going to make someone go, oh, my God, this is the best script ever. It's the whole character. It's the whole movement of it. It's the relationship. The relationship. Like, so if it doesn't change the relationship, ugh, right? The other thing is, as soon as you give the script to someone to read, like Meg gives it to her manager or I give it to my manager or to Meg, um, when I'm waiting, that's when I start my next writing, whatever it is, however it is, so that I have something else to think about. It could be an essay. It could be a review of a book I read, something to get me writing and thinking about something else. I am terrible at this because I will sit in the panic of, oh God, what do I do now while I'm waiting? But I'm working on it. So I'm giving you the advice that I'm trying to give myself, which is as soon as you hand it over, start the next thing so that you know, intellectually and emotionally, not all your eggs are in that script basket. You actually Great have another advice. project you're working on. Great. So advice. I'm going to take my own advice. Ready and go. And go. <laughs> Any um, minute now. <laughs> all right. Joseph and Allie asked about voice and lava, which, of course, are linked. How do you find your voice and bring it onto the page? How do you take a step back and figure out what you can bring that's new and original? Um, and then the other part of that question was how to make that step from turning a fun project into something fueled by lava. Right. So fun to me means situations and entertainment, which is important. Don't get me wrong. Super important, but it's not a story yet because the lava and what is this about? Um, so for me, when I say lava, it's all subtext, right? I'm not talking autobiographical. Um, lava's there in your big emotions and big reactions to events. Um, it could be a small event. Um, I, in a previous podcast, talked about trying to get on a train and get a seat with my kids. And all of a sudden, I just, all the lava came up. Well, look, it, I just talked on the first part of this, like trying to stand in my closet and pack has brought up so much uncomfortableness and vulnerability. And I don't even know what it's about, except it's being seen in clothes. I don't know what it is. So part of learning how to put lava in your work is just to recognize as it comes up just through your day. Because it's there bubbling all the time. It might be because you're standing in your closet having to pack. It might be because your mom's the, on your phone. You look and there's your mother. It might be because your brother just said that nasty thing he always says. Right. It's 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 swirling around all the time. And the first thing to do is just recognize it. You don't have to do anything about it. I don't want you to go swimming in the trauma. Just say, OK, there it is. This is what it feels like. This is what it feels like in my body. It feels super tight in my chest. 
I start to freeze. That's what I do when my lava comes up. My body literally starts to freeze. Some people might need to run around the block. It does. Some people might feel nauseous. You that what is that vulnerability? How does it manifest in your body? Again, I'm just asking you to notice it and then let it go. You don't have to do anything about it. I'm not asking you to pick up the phone call from your mother and have some confrontation. That is not what I'm asking you to do. I'm just asking you to recognize it. You could say, can you, what does it feel like? What does it look like? It's dark. It's hard. It's in my chest. Where is it? Yours might be in your knees. I don't know where it is, right? Just to get to know it so that when you're writing and that feeling starts coming up because it's unconscious, if you don't kind of know what it feels like, you'll just bounce away intellectually into something else. And you won't even, it will, it will never have had a chance to come up. But once you start to feel it, you'll be like, oh my God, there it is. Oh my God, I have to keep writing this scene directly towards it. And it just becomes an intuitive leaning in versus pushing out that you'll get to know because it's something that you have been just throughout your day getting to know yourself well enough to know that and to have self-awareness about it, right? Um, and of course, if when you start to even just have awareness about it, it starts to feel overwhelming, then you need to go and um, get therapy and get support because there it might be uh, too big. Um, so it's most important to be safe, right? Um, so it's really, to me, that is voice um, because the voice is so interested in telling the story and the subtext and the emotionality of it. It starts to take its own rhythm. It starts to take its own way of describing things. Um, so I guess it's two parts. One is lava. Just get to, just start to feel it in your body. Be brave. Feel vulnerable once a day. You will, I promise, at some point, feel vulnerable. It might just be because you want a cookie and you can't have it. I feel vulnerable. Okay, there it is. Um, but also in terms of voice, I'm sorry to tell you, but it's iteration. It's writing a lot because for it to start patterning and and finding itself, it's not going to be something that you're for the very first script you write down. I mean, maybe, maybe you have a clear voice, but most people you're going to write badly. And then all of a sudden you're going to have a scene and the voice is going to be there. And you just start to get to know it a little better. Like, I can't even tell you. If somebody said, what's my voice on the page? I'd be like, I don't know. I don't know. I can't. There's no articulation of it. It's just what I do. It's just the rhythm. It's the music that comes out of me. But that only happened after writing a lot, a lot. So don't worry if you don't feel your voice yet. You just have to write some more. Well, I was going to say for voice, uh, what I do a lot is, you know, I I started writing uh, plays. I moved on to essays and poetry. And what I was always trying to do was figure out how I would say those things out loud to people. Like a poem for me, right, was always about language and rhythm, but also it was something I imagined saying out loud. How did it feel? Did it feel like me when I was saying those words? Right. So like, even though it was, you know, uh, you know, it just, it had to be me telling that story in some way. And then with my action lines, this is me talking to you. So it has to sound like me. You know, and uh, and, you know, when I write pitches, too, it's all very much I write them all out and it's all very much me telling you the story. So as a way to practice as an exercise, you know, Meg said, you know, if you want to pitch the story to somebody and see what their eyes do, you know, watch their face. You also can write it too. imagine you're telling the story to me and Meg or imagine you're telling the story to your best friend, but on the page. 
How is that different than when you're writing it in order for an audience you don't know? So there's a familiarity between me and the page that I assume, which helps me trust myself to be like, yeah, we're best friends. You're reading the script. You love it. You're on for the ride or you hate it. I don't care. I'm telling this story to the people who love it. Um, I'm never trying to please everybody. I'm pleasing people who like to hear the word fuck every now and again in my script, or there might be six exclamation points in a line of dialogue. Oh my God, which is, you know, against the rules, but too bad. <laughs> so I'm telling the story to people who I assume want to read my script and who like my voice. I'm not trying to please, I'm not trying to convince anybody. Yeah, voice isn't about pleasing, that's for sure. My last thought, it's funny, Meg, I was thinking about, you were talking about a writer in the first part who had impeccable craft, but no voice. And I want to speak carefully here because voice is not about imitating other people. But I think at the beginning of your writing journey, there is an element of like, what do you love? And typically there's a movie, the generic version of the genre movie that he wrote is not the kind of movie that inspired him to sit down and write. I guarantee you it was a very interesting take on that genre or a really emotionally resonant version of that genre. And all of us have a movie, something that pushed us into wanting to spend hours in front of a screen typing or enter this career. It's this career in this business is too hard to just generically make the choice to do it. There was something incredibly moving that pushed you towards it. And I think you need to start asking the question of why that movie, why this artist, why this person? Because I guarantee you there's something voicey and rich in the way they did it. And so I think asking those questions can sometimes push you toward like what your heart is interested in, which I think can then kind of at least push you toward a like your voice. It's funny because... Um... A, I think you can read voice on a page. Again, read the scripts. Read Tony Gilroy. Watch his voice. He has a very distinct voice. You know, they they the these pro writers have very clear voices, and it will help you to see voice on the page. It will really help you. But what's interesting about what you're saying, Jeff, is often it can happen that what you love, you write. But it can also happen that you love something, and then ain't what's come out. Like, nope. it's so weird. Like, I want to do a broad comedy about sisters and I have this whole idea and it's going to have moments of pathos, but it's really just going to be fun and them getting to know each other in this dark comedy way. And that ain't what's come out. Like those sisters are like, yeah, we're not doing that. We're not doing that tone. We're going to thriller and this is going to be fucking scary. And there's dark shit in here. And you just got to go with it because I think that's what sometimes forcing it back into the broad comedy. Then you get some of this kind of inauthentic falseness, right? Sometimes you have to because you're just afraid of the broad comedy. You need to go learn it. But often I trust how it's coming out. And almost every guest we've had on here has talked about authenticity and that that is voice that you are getting to an authentic moment. I'm watching a TV show in a third season right now, and I'm like, what happened to this show? It has lost its voice. And I, well, I think the showrunner changed. And it's lost its balance. It has gone into sentimentality. It has moved from authenticity. And, and, and by in that move from authentic to sentimental, it has lost its voice. And to me, it's glaring. It may not be to other people, but this is our our work. Um, so that authenticity too. So it's all. It is absolutely, Jeff. I agree. What you love, it, that's going to be. There's authenticity sitting in there, but you also have to trust 
what's coming out and where it's driving you. Don't get your intellect involved to f- make it something. This is why I want you guys to do. Bar- it it doesn't want to be that. Don't let it. It's a writing exercise. Let it be what it wants to be. Yeah. And when I, uh, you know, I was in theater. I said that like eighteen times on these episodes. Sorry, but um, plays have very little description, and so I learned to be very sparse and to the point with my description. He walks in the room. He slams the door, and then you just get into the scene, right? Because uh, it was all for me about dialogue. So when I started writing a screenplay, I brought that with me, which is not my voice. And but Meg, when I started working with you, when we wrote a show together, your ability to craft action in your voice gave me permission to do the same. And it sort of broke something where I was like, oh, I get to do that, not just in dialogue, but all over the script because of the constraint that I had been trained in from the theater, you know, how plays are written and, you know, and directors, they're always, they just throw it all out anyway and do whatever they want on the stage. Right. Cause every show is sort of a new take. Um, so Meg, you were who I read and worked with that oh, inspired me. <laughs> you, no, you really did. I was like, wow, look what she's doing. And she, it was like freedom for me. And so I think what you're looking for too, when you see scripts that you like, where it's like, oh, I get to do that instead of I should do that or I have to do that. It's like, I, I get to do that. I will work hard now to see if I can try to get some, you know, if I can do it or maybe find a different way to express that same thing. But I never feel like when I'm writing, ah, fuck, I have to write an action line. I'm like, oh my God, I get to do this. How fun. And that's how I know that I'm writing in my voice. And the other way to think about voice is it's not performative. If you're performing on the page, you're probably off. <laughs> Speak for yourself. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, you know what I mean? Like, I'm it's like oh, people are going to love this. And oh, like, you're yeah, kind no. of performing for an audience no. of, isn't this great? And this is going to be so funny. And again, we all, have, we all have those clever. thoughts. We all have those thoughts. But that's kind of your performing versus what's true, what's authentic. What would have happened right now, which is be, actually be quite surprising, right? That's the other thing you could do. Look around your life and just start taking notes of the surprising shit that people do. That is so authentic that if you were writing it, you would have had her walk out. And instead, she walked up and smacked him in the face. And it just is like, oh, my God, so great. That's the, you know, to answer the question about uniqueness, you get that uniqueness from that specificity of what's authentic versus your intellect thinking about it in a performative way. All right. So next question um, is has to do with the writing process in terms of um, working writers and their process. Naomi said, where to begin in a story, particularly if the seed of a story is a scene you see in your head and not a log line. Do you write from that one scene outwards or brainstorm your way to the beginning before officially starting? She's getting lost in the line between brainstorming and doing. It's fuzzy for her. What do you write think? Write the scene. Write the scene. I think that it's the struggle between the the inside and the outside and trying to serve both the, you know, the what the details and then the 30,000 foot view. You know, log lines never work for me because I don't know what it's about until I've written it. Yeah. The log, log lines, lines for me are the last thing that way comes after. It's yeah. almost last. And brainstorming is always fun. It's just make sure you're asking yourself the right questions. 
what would be something, what would this character do in this situation? Or, but I, I write the scene, see what happens because sometimes what's in our head is, is the way to get us to the real stuff, write right. the scene, see what happens. Don't edit while you're doing it either. Don't try to just write the scene and then see write where a it pile goes. Of scenes, see what yeah. happens. And you might not even have the right main character. Like I said, like, uh, it is iteration. So don't be afraid. Like, again, no, you know, there's no kind of story police coming saying you wrote too many pages today. Like you, you just should. Can you imagine? Yeah. Wee -oo, wee -oo. <laughs> it's the opposite. You wrote no pages today. That's when my story police don't, come. Don't tell them. <laughs> don't tell them. All right. Aaron and Brandon ask, what do you have in place to feel comfortable starting the process? Character breakdown and bios, scene checklist, outline or skip the outline. Um, I think it's a great question. I think every writer is different. Um, uh, and to me, almost every project is different. Um, if I'm writing with somebody else, of course, that's going to be, you're going to have to be on the same page. But I would say in general, I start with a character and a world. And I'm, what I'm trying to do is that engine that I talked about in part one. I try to just talk myself through what is each of those elements, right? So, and again, not in like a deep, giant bio way just in general you know okay thematic what is this about what is the character journey what is where does she start where does she finish what's her end of act two just in general because that's going to create plot all right so i kind of have a thematic character movement i know what my world is generally i generally know if i'm doing a tone or a genre i know who my main character is and what that main relationship is and what they're I have a sense of what they want and how I'm going to convince you of what they want. Um, and then I know what's in conflict to that want. Like if I just have an inkling of each of those things to start, then I'll start either doing a full barf draft or I'm writing scenes or I'm doing like, a, you know, a, a not even an outline, kind of like more like scenes in the scriptment sense kind of thing to start pulling it up. Um now, I can get into that and all those little pieces of the engine start falling off or I realize I have the wrong thing or she doesn't actually want that or, oh, my God, this relationship peters out at the midpoint. That's why I don't generally, I don't worry about that. Just let it go where it wants to go. So now, if you're working uh, with a director or a studio, you might have to outline. And this is why I find it very hard because the outline to me is what you get at the end after all the work. <laughs> Like it's not in TV. It might be different. I don't know in terms of episodes, you have to outline a lot, but for features, um, I do a lot of work to get to an outline. I do a lot of scene writing. I do a lot of charting and all kinds of stuff just to even be able to boil it down to that, those beats. What about you, Laura? We're such different writers, Meg. <laughs> so when I'm just starting a project and I have an idea for a character or no idea for, for anything, I, I sort of, this is hard for me to do by myself, but I find a way to get physically comfortable and I close my eyes and I have a process where I sort of move through a series of doors to get to a sort of my safe place in my imagination. And I know what it looks like and I know where it is and what the light is like and what it smells like. And it's a very clear world. And then I walk down a path and someone's at the end of the path and they don't know I'm there. And I just look at them, every detail, what their hair is like, what color their skin is, if they have any scars, do they wear earrings, what their fingernails are like, what kind of shoes are they wearing? 
Are they wearing a t-shirt? Is it dirty? Is it new? Is it expensive? These things tell me so much about who that character is. And three really important things I always pay attention to their hair, their shoes, and their fingernails. These things for me, like how you move through the world, your hair is for me always about like presentation and your fingernails about sort of, um, do you have your anxiety in your finger? Like, do you chew your nails? How do you care about your presentation to, to the world? And, and, uh, for me, cause that's important to me. Um, and then I have them walk and I watch them walk and I watch them run and then I let them take me somewhere. And this is where I can get a sense of who that person is and, I don't know anything about them, what they want. This is how I found that woman in the year. I still don't know what the hell she's doing. One day I will come on this podcast and I will say, I have written the movie with the woman in the yurt and it is called the woman in the yurt. Um, but that's generally how I start. If I just don't know, because those details inform so much, like, are their shoes scuffed? Are they new? Is there a hole? You know, that, just fills in a lot of work for me. And a lot of writers don't give a shit about this, but I'm like, what's in their pocket? You know, are they shaven? These details and my brain loves this stuff. It just, I love to watch what presents itself to me. I don't like the idea that I'm creating something. And then I have that and it lives in my head all the time. And I, then I open my eyes and I write everything down. And then that is what I start with. That's sort of my, I have a character and I know, about them enough to start writing them to put them in a situation. I'm very, very loosey-goosey at the beginning. Hey everyone, so the new version of Final Draft, Final Draft 13, is out. And you know, the question's going around, is it worth it? Is it worth it to buy or upgrade? And our answer is yes. So I recently got notes on a pilot and I wanna see how it works in my rewrite to move a couple of scenes. And usually what I do is, you know, cut and paste. Uh, which works out sometimes, but mostly it means I lose text because I move so quickly. But the new version of Final Draft has this cool feature called Navigator 2.0, where you can actually just move scenes around right in your script. So without losing something, I can see what's working, what I'm missing, or what needs to be rewritten, or you know if I have to lose the scene altogether. But it's really, really helpful. And what's most important to me about this is that I'm not losing anything. Woohoo! Yes. I am laying out a new project, and I want to card it. And I can now do that inside of Final Draft, and it's now a super easy way. You can take those cards and then make them into an outline with a simple drag and drop. So it's just a great way to see the larger story that you're writing and get down the details, track characters. I just love it. And for our emerging writers, a great new feature is Final Draft lets you set writing goals like page count or timed writing sprints, which is super cool. So uh, we think the new version is really worth uh, investing in. So you can head over to finaldraft.com slash products to get the new version with a discount code of ScreenFD for 25% off. You should check it out. That's ScreenFD. S-C-R-E-E-N-F-D. Yeah, so Charlene asked, how much do you spend on an outline before you go to pages on a vomit draft? I just do what I just described, which is I do yeah. the very big engine points. So I kind of know my character starts here. Her goal is this at the end of Act 1. She's kind of here at the midpoint. I know exactly. For the most important part for me is what's the end of Act 2. That's the thematic. That's the emotion. That's what this is all about. 
and then kind of I I could have a climax or not. It just we'll see. And that that's all I do. And then I just start because uh, I like to have a beginning and an end, and knowing that when I get into the vomit draft, that could all go completely out the window. But it, it helps me to have a sense of where I'm going. Um, but so, Lorraine, do you have writing. any outline? You just start writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless I'm doing an adaptation. Or, you know, if I have something actually to start with, like IP, that's a totally different process. But if it's me, I'll just start writing. Once I I wrote a script called Two Assholes, it was just two women sitting in a backyard <laughs> who were assholes. And I just kept writing them. And then it turned into something else. You know, I, I like, I, I, I don't know. I just write. I love dialogue, though. I could write pages and pages. It's how I discover. I'm, I... It takes a lot of time, though, which can be overwhelming. Like, Meg, you have a sort of an, a bigger idea of how you approach it. And I just sort of like, I don't know, I just wade into the deep end and hope I don't drown. So it's super easy. <laughs> okay. Method. But basically, you can tell from these are two different approaches. and You should do whatever yeah. gets you there, man. Whatever yeah. gets you there. Yeah. Um. So James, Patricia, and... I believe it's pronounced Gudron, but I could be incorrect. I'm sorry if I'm wrong. They they have they're all asking about um getting overwhelmed by script format. Um James or Jamie, sorry, uh wants to write prose style versus uh script format. They want to write to feel, to keep it alive and then break it up technically later. But will I spend more time hacking into it parts and structuring it properly than if I had just done it? and the right form first. So, I mean, I think what Lorian's describing is almost prose writing. She's writing lots of dialogue, yep. but I think if prose writing is, I guess here's the thing I want to, I want to say there is within this question, a, a, a belief about that the script will come out as prose and then I'm, I'm going to piece it up into structure. It, it ain't going to work like that. The prose is going to be clay and then it's going to become its own thing in the structure of film because prose might end up being internal. You're t- I'm hearing what they're thinking. Please write that version. But no, when you go to the structure of a screenplay, that is all going to be visual. That is going to be behavior. I don't get to go in their heads. So it does shift in the structuring. Don't get hung up on what's right or wrong or having to hack something up. You let the prose be inspiration and then go to the format. And but it's interesting because Patricia said she took a class and as long as it stayed prosy, she had all this stuff coming up. But as soon as she had to take it and make it a beat sheet, she said her character stopped talking to her. So, Lorian, how do you stop that beat sheet idea from like sucking the joy out of the process? I don't do beat sheets because I don't. I, they don't work for me because it feels like I have to be very analytical, use like very dry words. I will do outlines for TV shows. I, you know, every episode, you're right, has to have an outline. Um, But I write and then I don't, I don't, for me, beat sheets don't work. But then I'm mostly focused on TV these days. So I don't feel like it's necessary. I don't know. Well, I think they do, TV, but I get what she's outlining. Yeah, I get what she's saying that like when you have to turn this evocative, emotional, powerful like dialogue and style into she her heart breaks. 
you know, you don't, you lose so much. Like, how do you write an evocative but beat it's sheet? It's interesting because a beat sheet, though, could be a campfire story. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I think there's just a different way to look at it. It's not, is there a way to do a beat sheet that's not informational? You're still telling a story. Because what you're talking about, the, what is a beat? A beat sheet's going to be the character moving and doing things, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. being and being countered. And then this happened. And then, oh my God, that happened. I mean, maybe take your favorite movie and how do you, be, can you beat sheet it to see, because it's your favorite movie, it will intuitively be interesting to you. See if you can learn to write a beat sheet that way. Now, I know that like Gudron asked, um, he said, this is this will connect to this. I don't know whether to just start writing in a way that gets it out there or make the effort to learn the format and start in the way it needs to ultimately be written. I will tell you that working at Pixar, Andrew Stanton writes these beginning beat sheet kind of things, but he calls them a scriptment, which is... He is beating out the big movements of the character and the relationships. But when he needs to write a scene to make it emotional and stay in it, he will write the scene. Suddenly you get two pages or three pages of a scene and then he's back to beats and he will do that like music whenever he feels. So it's like a, it's a it's a combination of a script and a treatment. Well, I do those, but, but a, yeah. like a like a save the cat sort of beat sheet exercise. I, I, I think the trick is I think what she's talking about is. If you're very into the details, it's hard to zoom out and figure out what a beat is, right? Because you can't write every scene. You can't write the nuance necessarily. I mean, you can write the nuance, but it's bigger. It's like, how do you chunk it? How, what's the what's a beat? I think is the question, maybe, you know, a, a character movement. Is well, that... the beat should all be based on character. It should all be based emotionally on what's happening with that character. So it should still be pulling up emotion it should still be compelling and if your character is no longer talking to you yes it may be the form but it could also be becoming very real now and you have to you have to actually write this thing and it's not play anymore sometimes that's okay yeah. that it's a it's a step in your process as a writer and you might just need to write a lot of lousy beat sheets until you can find it or you realize it's not working because the story's not working. That's what the beat sheet was showing you. It was showing you this isn't emotional. This isn't here. She's not in this beat sheet. That's the other thing you should ask yourself. Why didn't she show up for her beat sheet? Because maybe you got the wrong beats. It's just another possibility. You could ask your character in a monologue, first person, to tell the beat sheet. And if she's not telling it then it's not her story that's why she maybe isn't talking to you but see if you can get her to tell you the beat sheet of the movie that's a good idea all right next question uh we have questions about carding from naomi and cynthia what is carding and where does it fit in the writing process at what point do you start creating cards and what do you include uh in those cards and how does that help in the rewriting process right so carding can happen before or it can happen in a completely rewriting process. Um, carding is very close to beat sheets. And I do um, card. That yeah, makes well, more are... sense for me to move it around physically. But that's this a beat sheet. sheet. But yeah, that's so, a beat sheet. So I do beat sheets. I just do it on the floor with index cards. <laughs> so I can crouch down and get in it. When you do it, cards at Pixar, you're doing them in sequences versus scenes. Because in animation, they're called sequences. But it's basically each scene. And what I would do is I always make sure that the character 
moments in the scene are a different color card because I want to be able to see the character in every scene, how she's changing, how she's moving. Um, I think carding is also especially helpful if you're writing with somebody else so that you're definitely on the same page and this whole team is on the same page. You should be able to pitch from your cards. You should be able to stand there and tell me a story, not kind of, and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. It should literally be like a campfire story from the cards. Um, so carding can happen at any time. I, um, I often do it after the barf draft, after I get a lot of stuff up and a lot of clay up, I'll go, okay, what is this? What is this? Like, what? here's one version uh, of cards. Um, I know at Pixar, you card every time you rewrite, you go back to cards every single time. Doesn't matter how much of the movies gone into layout, you're going back to cards. Um, so I find carding very, very helpful, but I don't start there because then it can again become performative and it can become very outside in. And you're going to tra start trying to write towards it uh, versus this is the story. How do I most clearly articulate that story to an audience? Well, that's the cards. The cards are the are the way, are the path to get that thing that came up in you, that character, that story out to the audience. And in terms of what it actually looks like is I'll take my script, I print out my script, and I write on it. The piece, I think, is the character beat and like a marker. And then I write that on an index card, right? Whether it's a different color or not. And I'll say, you know, like she sets the building to fire, you know, she sets the building on fire. This is the best fucking moment of her life, you know, and she kisses the guy and he runs away from her. Like that is probably more than one beat, but like then I might write that on several cards. And then when I have done that with every sort of chunk of my movie, and then I look at all the cards in Acts 1, Acts 2, Act 3, and then I can look at it like a goddess and see what I have created. And then I move things around. Like if I don't buy that after she kisses the guy and he runs away, that she goes and has goes to a party and is happy. That doesn't make sense. Or maybe she sets another fire. Or, you know, I'm trying to figure out if if thing if the rhythm of it makes sense and sometimes I'll take cards off but I like to do it on the floor so I can physically slide them around or move things off to the side pinning makes it feel too like you've pinned it to the board it's permanent so I have a rug and I slide them around and then and I stack them really yeah. does help you iterate right like when mm -hmm. we did it at Pixar um Pete Doctor literally could be walking up to his ankles in cards by the end of the day. Mm -hmm. But you are just pulling them down, riding, going up again, pulling down. It gets iteration, iteration, iteration. And then you put that one, you dig around and you put that one back up, but you put it in a different place. And yeah, then that... I will look at the cards that I've laid out and say, as, a, as an exercise, I'm going to put my script in this order in a separate document and I'm going to read it and see if it works better. Yeah. So it's just a tool for you to use to see the story from high above and then down into detail and that make sure that character emotional journey is also in there. Yeah. And um, I know some people do it. There's a final draft system. Like I tried that one time and then my brain exploded because I like to physically move it around like a goddess. So Lorian and, and Meg, as just like a beginner writer here, you know, every class that I've taken, we are told to start it, you know, and, and I've only taken TV writing, to be fair, right? So um, always been told to start with outline with beat sheet. Um, and so I'm just curious, uh, 
It, well, that's part of the TV process because those beat sheets or outlines go to the executives and they have to get approved. So that is very much coming from the room churned and churned and churned and churned and the room put a lot of shit on the board and the and the room started to break episodes and they were looking at giant arcs for the season. And so the room has done a lot of that barf drafting live in action. Right. And you could do that for days and days. Right. Weeks you're doing that. And then once you do that, now you get a single episode and you're beat sheeting it. So mm -hmm. to in a class, it doesn't make sense to me completely that they're asking you to first beat sheet because that in a, in a real room, that process has happened. That that chattering and carding or whiteboarding or all, there's all different ways to yeah. do it. So you can I, I, if I was taking that class, I would just do my own process and get to a beat sheet for the class, right? But ultimately you still are going to need to pull it up. Again, now a beat sheet might show you a lot, right? Like I said, might show you you're off track. I mean, they 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 are valuable, but um it's very it would be a very intellectual exercise to start with. Yeah. It's, versus a creative uh kind of dreamer. You got to let the dreamer yeah. stomp around. I think I remember the exact moment when I kind of realized what you guys were talking about exactly this and i was like oh why <laughs> why did we start with this structure i don't understand <laughs> so i just wanted to add that because it is something that i see constantly with these work with a with the classes and you know no that's I awesome think. that's awesome yeah okay so mary says story beginnings how do you decide the point at which your audience jumps into the story how do you differentiate act one setup from backstory how do you decide your inciting incident she wrote a tv pilot and discovered all the things that seemed crucial to set up up front could either serve as backstory or be cut from the plot altogether i'd love to know how to come to this realization sooner oh no but you can't I'm sorry <laughs> i would like to know too Tell me when you I find mean, out, Mary, you write me an email no, and let me know. To be fair, Mary, eventually as you iterate and do it over and over, your brain yeah. will intuitively know and start jumping. Um, yeah. Oftentimes, I mean, most emerging beginner writer scripts, honestly, the first half of it yes. is backstory. Here's the and great news, Mary. You figured it out. Yes, you figured it out. That, that's most of the battle is, wait a minute, I don't need this. And then you cut the first half and now you're really starting your pilot. That's amazing. Good for you. And all of that stuff you wrote, that's backstory is in the script, even though it's not in the script, because you now know it and it's all within the layers and the subtext. So it's never, never wasted, ever, ever, ever wasted. Um, I will say that you start to feel like, like I said, it's like music. That I intuitively, like, I will ask myself the question, why am I starting now? Why today? Of all the days in this story that's had, and all their life, why now? Why? Because the story is starting. I mean, really look at movies now. The story starts in the first scene. The story is starting. We're not prepping. Not that there aren't seeds being laid for later and all that kind of stuff, but really, we come right into the story um, the more active you can get, the better, I think, sometimes. Now, active could be actually action or it could be very quiet but emotional draw-in action. But I, I, you got to grab me and get me into the story. And it is a challenge. Then how do I explain all the backstory? That is the challenge of writing. It's what every writer faces. How do I explain their emotional point of view on the world, their belief system? Actors will tell you it's become what they're doing. 
It's the choices they're making. It's their behavior is telling you a lot. But in general, the inciting incident is here's their world. Here's who they are. Who's, here's how they see the world and themselves. They're already got a slight problem, probably already in the first scene. And here comes the inciting incident to make an offer. Either an impossible problem has arrived or something they really, really want has arrived, but it's going to be hard to get. Like the story is starting. They're starting to be pushed and make choices. What choices are they making that's shifting the story in every scene, in every scene? And, you know, that's why you do many drafts because that stuff gets distilled and distilled and distilled and distilled. Yannick says, where do you start when creating a character? So I described one of the ways I do it. And the other way is I just start writing. I type a name into final draft and I write a line of dialogue and then I type another name and then I listen to them talking and I see what comes up based on how they talk to each other. Yeah, I tend to do it through relationship and how they do talk to each other. And I can start out with archetypes, to be honest with you. I'd have no problem with that. It's early drafts. It's just me mulching around. She's this, he's that. They're opposites, but this is what they love together. And, you know, um, this is what they share. This is what they want. And them wanting it is what starts to drive their relationship and who they are as characters. I look at shame and fear. Uh, you know, you can start asking questions like what 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 are they most ashamed of? What are they most frightened of? What was the best day of their life? What was the worst day? And sometimes I write that out and sometimes I just think about it and noodle around and and uh, but pretty much they arrive for me on the page. They it's almost like a dream has to start and uh, they have to kind of tell me who they are. So I don't worry too much. Like I know a lot of people are like, here's the checklist for a character flaw, wound, blah, blah, blah. Eh, I, 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 well, I will eventually ask those questions. Right. I'm not saying those aren't good tools to go and clarify. Um, but I don't start there. I don't start with a checklist. I start with the creative dream of it. Um, and what's authentic? What feels authentic to me about this person? Um, that might mean I need to go research, right? Like if I'm doing a race car driver, I don't know what an authentic race car driver is psychologically and what kind of people get in race cars. And, you know, you know, and when you start doing research, you find out something crazy, like I'm just making this up. Most of them come from broken homes or whatever. I, I'm just made that up. But you, you're like, oh, well, that's interesting. So sometimes it's researching the world you're in or the character or their job or, you know, if I, you know, was doing a, a story about somebody who was abused as a child, I better know what that happens. I better know the steps of it. I better know psychologically. So I might do a lot of character research. And then again, I will then forget it all. Right. I'm not writing to it. I'm like, oh, that's good fodder. That's good mulch. That's good information. And then let that character arrive. I think to try a bunch of different methods out, start with that. Here are a bunch of questions you can ask about your quest, your character. Great. Does that help you get where you want to go? Is it just help just to write? Do, to figure out what works for you, which is a lot of experimentation and it can feel very daunting and it takes a lot of time and every project might be slightly different, have different needs, ask different questions. So experiment, do the Meg method, do the Lorian method, do the I just, I think be careful when it starts to feel prescriptive. Hmm. I have to know this before I start writing. If that's what's stopping you from writing, I don't know what the flaw is. Okay, you know everything else, but you don't know what their flaw is. Okay. 
So start writing. Them. Yeah. You know, maybe you'll then you know it. you're an excuse time. Then you're then you <laughs> yes. know you're afraid. You're just afraid to go right when you're like, well, I can't because I don't have the flaw. I'm okay. Well, that's an excuse. Because I will say, Meg, like you mentioned wound as a word. And mm-hmm. even, like, I actually find that is helpful for me to start with, because even if it ends up being a totally different wound, then at least the character is wrestling with something right from the start, even if they're not doing it like on the surface when they're talking to people or going places, there's this thing that is on them or in their brain that is like there and kind of bubbling. And that usually that will change or become something else. But in a first draft, there's something emotionally interesting for me to at least be investing in as I'm hammering the keys. That works for me. But you know what, make you're muted. Yeah. Yeah. I think wound is a really good place to start. Um, It's vulnerability, right? But do not think that wound is the plot or the motive or the engine. It is not. If if this, if they have a wound and this engine and this want doesn't arrive, they're just going to stay exactly where they are. The only thing that shifts them out to analyze that wound or bring it up, emotionally feel it, resolve it, is the plot, which is based on want. What do they want? The want is what's driving the story. And I think a lot of people are getting confused that the wound and the need is driving the story. I don't think it is. It's the want. Mm-hmm. So just be a little bit careful there um, about the that. Jen Grisanti episode really gets into this of the difference between want versus wound and how the want forces the character to confront the wound. So that would be a great one. I think Jen really got into character stuff um, in that episode that I think is partly on this question. Yeah. And a lot of this stuff that we're talking about right now, I do after I have a character to in order to see them better, feel them better. There's a piece missing Then I go to these questions. I don't create from them because then again, they become performative or they're just, I don't know. It doesn't work for me. Inevitably, they are a character that doesn't feel real. Um, uh, So that's just for me. So, you know, like Lauren said, try different things. Yeah. And this is why I try to think about the character is coming to me and building trust so that they will trust me to tell their story instead of me creating a character. I tend not to like to talk about it that way because I'm not creating. I've created the space for this character to come to me. And that's where the discipline is for me. Like, okay, I'm open now. Who's coming? And then being available. Yeah, and what we're talking about is a much scarier way to do it. I mean, it's easier to have a checklist and answer all the questions and be like, well, there's my character. Well, that is not digging into lava, man. That is not digging into the right brain. That is not digging into the dreamer. And that dreamer doesn't give a shit about that checklist, right? The checklist is to help you dig out that rawness, that authenticity. You got to go there first. For me, that's where I want to go first. But I don't care if you go there third, but you got to get there eventually and find out what helps you get there. All right, guys, that's all we have time for today. We've got more questions. So we're going to do a part three. And your questions are awesome. Thanks so much for coming to the Facebook page and and asking these questions. Um, Listen next week for part three. And remember, you are not alone and keep writing.